we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Wherever you find us, whether it's a video on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. You can also find us on major social media platforms where I give you a heads up about upcoming shows and which date and time they will be aired. If you go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, you can find links to the shows, mp3 files which you can download, or links to your favorite platform like iTunes, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and all other major sources. You can find information for upcoming and past talk show appearances as well as new book projects at MarlenePardo.com. You can also purchase books and merchandise there. And you can visit my author page on Amazon at Marlene Pardo Pelliser. Due to popular demand, I'm narrating my true believer stories that I've collected throughout the years in a new series called Supernatural Storytime. You can find links at SupernaturalStoryTime.com. If you are into classic horror, ghosts, and adventure stories, I narrate some of those at Nightshade Diary. And you can find links at NightshadeDiary.com. If you would like to read noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit the Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. I do want to thank you all for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. How is everybody doing today? Good. I'm doing well. Very well. Um, as I mentioned in my last show, here we are, uh, even though you might see the show a little bit later, it's mid-September, but you know, in South Florida, we don't have no Indian summer, no fall, nothing like that. Uh, we're still, as a matter of fact, uh, in the middle of hurricane season, which hopefully it'll be done in a couple of months. And the reason why I bring that up is Hurricane Dorian just, um, you know, came close to us maybe like a month ago, more or less. And, uh... In other words, you worry about different things, and there and I and I also mentioned that the last time, you know, the other day, I went to do some shopping and I walked in and all the Christmas tree decorations are up and and things for Halloween and, and I was like, wait, it's summertime, but yeah, it's it's you you're pushed along into starting to think already about the holidays and everything and it's great, but yes, it's like. Uh, 
your the, your reality versus like I said, you walk into even department stores now, and it's like okay, no, no, not. As a matter of fact, I I was looking for some herbicide for for my garden. There was none to be found because they I don't know if they hid it somewhere at the store, but it's like okay, even though you're South Florida, forget gardening, forget uh, herbicides or anything like that. It's time to buy your Christmas things. So yes, yeah. Uh, but anyway, guys, let's talk about really the important thing and, and what it's about is who the guest that I have here today, which I'm very excited, very excited. And this is a lady. She, we're talking to her directly from the UK, and her name is Maria Wheatley. Now, Maria has, a, she's an author and a tutor, and she's been teaching past life regression, reflexology, tarot, and dowsing for Swindon College and the British School of Yoga for 15 years. Uh, her late father, Dennis Wheatley, was a master dowser was considered a world authority in the geodetic system of earth energies uh he taught her to douse over 20 years ago and she loves the world of paranormal yay and she's felt inspired to write about the mystical stones of avery while researching the books um she, uh, her and her co-author were followed around the stone circles by a spirit who guided them to rediscover long lost solar alignment which we're absolutely going to ask her about and um her lay father and other master diviners showed Maria how the stones absorb and transmit earth energies. And she's, like I said, she's an author and uh, she's a sensitive uh, as far as uh, with detecting electromagnetic equipment. And, you know, I've talked about this on other shows, how sometimes now they're discovering that a lot of uh, not only ancient, but uh what seems to be modern um, structures, whether temple, churches, or anything, there's some type of electromagnetic or ley lines connected with the site. And sometimes when they do archaeological digs, they, they realize that. Uh, so anyway, uh, help me to welcome Maria. How are you doing today, Maria? I'm doing fine. Thanks for inviting me on your show. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. No, thank you. It is my pleasure. Um, Maria, obviously, from the information given on your bio you imagine grew up with uh surrounded by the paranormal and dowsing and how was that as far as being a child i imagine was that the norm for you and how did it shape your childhood well exactly i mean it was it was the norm it was you know about finding out about sort of the wonders of standing stones and places like avebury and stonehenge and uh, and it was re it was really very very good and uh, i kind of naturally fit into it like you know a hand in a glove okay. <laughs> in a way yes. so yeah so it was really good right right because like i mentioned that i've i've you know there's people sometimes that their parent will have some field of expertise or interest, but they just don't share it. They're like, you know, they can understand it, but they don't. Uh, it's like, okay, well, yeah, that's not my thing. So, and uh, how, how young were you when your father started to like, for example, uh, introduce you into that as far as practical taking you out? Was that as a young child? Well, yeah, it was as a young child, but you know, kids are kids oh, and uh, you, you just uh, find it as a playful kind of wonder in a way. So it wasn't until I got into my sort of 20s that mm -hmm. I really kind of felt that there was something very 
very powerful about ancient sites and there was something really going on that our ancestors had awareness of that perhaps we have a disconnect to so then I really took it quite seriously and and to this day a bit like yourself we're all into a mystery we want to understand something that is beyond ourselves and so I'm, I'm still finding out a lot about ancient sites uh, to this day yes right and, and every once in a while I'll read an article where uh, they let's say they're putting in a new parking lot or they just dig a little bit further around an existing dig and they come up with all new information that sets prior theories about what they said the site was for on its ear. So every time they think that they've come up with something, there's a, something comes up and, I, you know, whether it's sometimes the actual age of the sites or what the intended purpose for it was. Uh, it comes into question and luckily i want to say that now academia is starting to backpedal and willing to change their theories because i think before they were very hesitant to admit that maybe they had been wrong or that they had to amend their conclusion as far as what the scientific or archaeological you know theory was or fact because eventually some some of these things turn into fact um when uh did as far as uh, because everybody's very familiar, for example, with Stonehenge, but I think they're finding more and more sites. Is there any other site besides Stonehenge which is so well known that you ever visited that you found, like you said, that even if appearances weren't as dramatic, the, that the power that was there was significant? Well, when we put it into context about, you know, the ancient uh, landscape of the Neolithic and Bronze Age at uh, the time of stone circles about, you know, four and a half thousand years ago, there were, well, today there's 900 standing stones that mm -hmm. survive and Stonehenge is just one of those. Right. So, I mean, just 17 miles to the north of Stonehenge, you have the largest stone circle in the world, Averyhenge. And even if you go to the north of England to places like Castle Rig and Longmeg, they predate uh, Stonehenge. So... England uh, and the British Isles, when we include places like Ireland and Wales and Scotland, mm -hmm. it was awash with ancient sites. So I think if we go back to the day of a four and a half thousand years ago, then there was probably a stone circle every five to ten miles apart. We were a kind of island of sacredness that had standing stones that mark these very, very powerful earth energies, be that a vortex or be that a kind of very deep aquifer. They were marking the landscape of what we couldn't see. They standing stones mark the unseen. Do you think, and, and, and I'm gonna ask you in a minute about the, because of course, like you said, we're talking Bronze Age and even now they're not quite sure how the mechanics of how they were able to raise some of these stones or you know bring them to locations where they were actually brought up do you think i mean i've i've found i've heard well i've read some of them some of them you you hear they were aligned to certain stars or as far as you know, astronomically in other words uh then i've heard of some that they've had burial pits close by 
Uh, do you think that this was a gathering place at certain times, or what do you think the purpose was for these sites? I, I think stone circles were like a diamond. They were multifaceted. Okay. I mean, they, they do have astronomical alignments. You are very correct in that. So some of them would face to particular sunrises or sunsets at particular times of the year. Uh, but that, I think there's more to it than just that. So uh, people would gather there, that's for sure. I mean, not necessarily at Stonehenge, because when people go to Stonehenge, it's actually quite a small site on the inside. Mm -hmm. It's only about uh, 106 to 8 feet uh, in diameter. But if you go to somewhere that's a super henge, like Avebury Henge, it's over 1,000 feet in diameter. And wow. you can fit thousands of people into there. So mm -hmm. I think some stone circles were about people and gathering. Others were about kind of the more kind of elite priesthood gathering. And that's, right. that's the difference. So there's... They vary in size and they vary in function, very dramatically so. So some of the superhenges like Longmeg uh, in the north of England and Avebury Henge, they were about masses of people coming together. And why were they coming together? They were coming together at particular times of the year. Uh, when the energies of the site, when the time of the year is potent and there's a kind of thinness of the veil between this world and the next. So it's a right. kind of supernatural time of the year. Do you think there was some aspect of ancestor worship as far as maybe part of their ceremonies at certain times, like you said, when the veil was thinner? There does seem to be evidence for an ancestral worship, that's, uh, that's for sure, because the ancestors, even in Druidry today, mm -hmm. when, we, when we think about how modern uh, neo-pagans uh, worship, there is that aspect of uh, the, the worship of the ancestors. So I think into the, uh, the ancient Druidry, that was a vital key and aspect, being close to those that departed, right. to give us information about you know, the forthcoming year as an, a kind of oracle of, uh, of the path for the future. Right, and, and, and sometimes we forget that ancient man didn't have uh, the technologies we have now to for, foretell, let's say, for example, weather or cycles of weather. And these things were critical when it could mean the difference between thriving or starvation. And of course, what came with it, which was sickness and your population be decimated. So absolutely, that like what you just described, that, that meeting, uh, whether it was for ceremony to... Uh, see some type of portent i imagine as to what the coming year would bring for people i it would be so important because again this was it, I, and I, I guess what i'm saying is it was more of a survival was at a more basic level than what we are used to we don't have to worry about a lot of these things anymore no, we don't have to worry about those sort of things. But, you know, if we look at the climate going back about four and a half thousand years ago, mm -hmm. it was actually better climate than it is today. It was the suboral mm -hmm. uh, climate where you had warmer, um, almost like in England, a Mediterranean style of climate. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, it wasn't until the, the bronze, uh, the Iron Age actually where it dropped a degree and it went to the sub-Atlantic uh, climate. So I think that even though they had concerns about uh, their own lives, the weather was uh, a lot better. I think they were very connected to the earth and they, they we have a disconnect to the earth yes. today. Yes. I, I think these ancient people were very connected with the cycles of the season, the cycles of the sun and, and the cycles of the earth. And I think today we don't have that as much. <clears throat> do you think the timing or the age, that's a better question, do you think the age that they've guesstimated for some of these sites is accurate or are they really older? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, Marlene. I really do feel that uh, the archaeological analysis is a model. It, mm -hmm. It's not written in stone, excuse right. the uh, pun. <laughs> so so uh, some of the sites, I think, are probably older, but it's archaeological a model that if you have two bits of carbon from a site, you choose the younger date anyway. It's a kind of safeguard. Mm -hmm. so, and really, there is the, the the stone circles. They were very what's called a clean site by archaeologists. People didn't dump things. They didn't right. drop things. So it's very difficult to date. Uh, you know, a site. It, it really is. They could have stood for thousands of years before before the archaeological model said they're all four and a half thousand years ago. I mean, the pyramids are dated to four and a half thousand years ago. Yes. Stonehenge is every single site really all on that time scale i mean i i find that quite difficult to right. to believe it fits in an archaeological model and mindset of the 1950s right and it's like very coincidental like you said that what what are the chances according to the proposed age that everybody was doing this uh at the same moment and these were very significant projects and um and as far as manpower, et cetera, to, to actually do this. And again, this is the, my next question. Obviously, this needed a lot of manpower as in effort from whoever was there, whether they had a group of them. Do you think that the reason why they took the trouble to raise these things, was it, uh, how can I say, was it to be in tune with the earth or was it to be in tune with something in the sky or was it a connector yeah that's a really good question i think it was both i think they were marking out very powerful earth energies and uh the sun obviously is a, a critical part of uh, the earth's life it mm -hmm. you know we, we go around the sun it causes the seasons and also on a very metaphysical level the sun gives off energy. I mean, really, when we think about what the uh, what the the sun does, uh, it it uh, it gives off light in a form of electromagnetic radiation, and light co uh, consists of photons, which are produced when an object heats up. And so, at particular times of the year, standing stones can can heat up, and they they cause these reactions, and they can produce their own type of uh, energy. And this is why, you know, sir. Certain stones and stone circles are aligned to the sun. It's about the electromagnetic radiation. It's not just about a kind of pretty alignment to mm -hmm. the sun 
as the heel stone is to uh, Stonehenge at the summer solstice when the, when the sun is said to arise above it. So I think there's a lot going on that we're only just realizing. But the, the crux of it is that standing stones mark very, very powerful earth energies that the radiation of the sun at particular times of the year can activate. And so it's a bit like a battery uh, and it's a bit like kind of, you know, a light switch. We're used to switching our lights on mm-hmm. and off, you know, to yes. get light. Yes. To, to the ancient ancestors, it was a particular time of the year that illuminated such ancient sites. And some of these sites are above very, very powerful vortex energy mm-hmm. and some of these vortex energies can allow us to grow spiritually in our awareness and become a part of the land i mean that's that's another thing yes. we, we have this disconnect where the earth is the earth and we mm. are we i think back in the day when these ancient sites were constructed it was more of an us we are a part of everything and yes. that's what we've lost today unfortunately yes. and many of us are trying to reconnect to the earth and uh, become one again with gaia yeah, well, and, and um, I tell everybody, I, I have a small micro farm, and I, ha- call, I tell everybody I'm a wimpy farmer because people don't realize it's difficult because, you know, you have to, you know, compensate for what the weather doesn't give you, whether it's too much rain. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. Proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Not enough rain. Uh, you know, and it's hard work, but uh, this is, um, I think, one of the exercises that has brought me the closest. Uh, it's very hard work, but it's got me the closest to the rhythm of seasons, even in the subtropics there, you know, uh, as far as the growth and uh, like you said, as far as the, the how everything is meshed together. Uh, and in other words, and the humans, let's say in this case, you like what you ride the wave of it. You're part of it. You know, you're not either, you're not trying to conquer it or, uh, you know, have yourself apart. You're, you're enmeshed in it as well. If, if in this case, if you're trying to make things grow and things of that nature. So yes, I understand. And the reason why I say this is sometimes we see farmers now, you know, these big, huge farms where they have a lot of machinery and it's very automated. And there's, uh, it's almost, I want to say for lack of a better word, very scientific. Nothing wrong with that because I know that they're looking at uh, production of a very large, on a very large scale. 
But when you're like the the one on one, like I said, like you're the you're it, you're the farmer. <laughs> you 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 really get back in touch with that vibration that you, like very aptly you described most of us have lost. Well, that's right. I mean, you're, you're obviously very connected being, uh, you know, uh, in your own kind of uh, farming environment and close to, to the earth. But a lot of people that live in townscapes and cityscapes and, you know, urban environments, mm -hmm. they, they lose that sense of season. You have that. A yes. lot of people lose that sense. And this is what I, I think is very important for for people today is to not kind of stare at the mobile phones we all do it i yes. do it uh, and and the tv and we look to outside of ourselves but if we look to inside of ourselves and where we are on the earth then we would get such a huge huge satisfaction and it, it's, it's very sad that we have lost this connection to to gaia because she is our mother she gives us everything everything yes. on the earth she gives us yes yes and Again, because of technology, which is good. I'm not anti-technology, but yes, it does. It's kept us away. It uh, there's that that separation. Now, let me ask you. In the bio, you mentioned that one of the times that you were. Let me ask you. When was when you were dousing? Was there a moment when you had an aha experience? And I mean firsthand. Even though I know you grew up in a household, or something happened to you an event happened to you that was undeniable as far as your experience with dousing or the paranormal or the earth whatever you want to call it nature how's that yeah that's that's a really uh, uh a good question actually i love that yeah for, for me it was like uh i you know you listen to your parents and mm -hmm. uh, you believe your parents uh, we we all do but i remember being in my early 20s at stonehenge and listening to all the things about earth energies and stonehenge and how great it was and, and you listen and and you learn but then i remember this uh, chap Put, putting his hands against a standing stone and the next minute he was thrown about 10 feet back with the, with the power of the uh, megalithic energy coming out of that stone. Oh. I mean, you can't touch the stones today at Stonehenge, incidentally, because they have uh, grown in power. But when I saw that, everything kind of made sense. I actually saw it for myself mm -hmm. and didn't hear it secondhand. So I realized then at a power center like Stonehenge, it is exceptionally uh, powerful and it can make huge, huge differences to, to our lives. That chap, uh, incidentally, he said he felt like the whole of the site was inside of him and it was like electricity put up to volume number 11. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> kind right, of, I can imagine. Uh, I, I described it. And then when I looked into and researched other people's experiences at uh, ancient sites, 
the the second largest stone circle in, in the world is called Stanton Drew, and it's in Somerset. And there was, uh, you know, a very learned uh, gentleman called uh, Colonel Menzi, and he said he was surveying the site one day, and all of a sudden, it was a cloudy, overcast day, typical of a British weather, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, he saw descending from the sky this kind of spiral that went round the stones creating like this fire but the fire didn't burn we call that when fire mm-hmm. in wicked and druidry and it surrounded all of the stones and that changed his life so we know that these ancient sites create paranormal supernatural events that we don't fully understand but we can witness the the side effects of exactly and was there a time because I've heard of people that as they become more in tune with this or they visit these sites they like they're almost their subconscious starts it starts meshing with their subconscious they start having certain dreams in other words it's it's with you all the time it's not just necessarily at the moment that you're there at that site that's right. I think so. I, I think you become attuned to a place, the power of place. Mm-hmm. And that power of place in, in modern day Druidry, we think of it as spirit of place, connecting to the spirit of place, the ancestors and the guardian of a site, for, for example. And when mm-hmm. all of these things come together, there is, again, like we were saying, not just a connection to the earth, but a connection to the power place. And when that connection of the power of place comes together, it's a union of you and the place. And that is critical, I feel, for uh, the, the understanding the knowledge of the past to move forward today. When you had that experience that, that you described that you and your co-author were followed by a spirit guide, that that gave you something was was that a guardian or was was that a human spirit or was that an elemental what what was it that that uh, attended with you that day well at Avery Henge uh, all of those uh, years ago I can remember I did a kind of ceremony where I touched every single stone at Avery Henge and there's a lot of stones incidentally okay. it, it took quite some time but I touched all the stones and I always ask an ancient site what do you want me to tell mm-hmm. if you if you give me something I will tell it I will tell it to the world but you know what is it you want to impart to me and and I really did feel on that day it was one of the ancestors that came forward okay. and, and said, you know, this is a long lost solar alignment. Uh, you can't see it today. Uh, it, it's been altered because of the, the skyline. But this is what happened four and a half thousand years ago. So I really do feel that was an ancestral present that was uh, guiding guiding me on that day okay. to, to reveal something of the past. OK, OK, that's very interesting. Uh, as far as the dousing, uh, do you do when you doubt and, I, and do you have because we talked about this earlier, do you have dousing rods that are your favorite or do you douse with different instruments? How, how does that work for you personally? 
Well, I dance with uh, a set of L-Rods, a bit like mm -hmm. uh, uh, yourself. Right. And I, I also use uh, what's called Egyptian pendulum devices. So I yes. use the Isis and the Karnak uh, pendulum. They're my preferred dousing instruments. But, you know, if, if push comes to shove, uh, I know energies and how they make me feel. So I would use my own body, for for example, okay. as well as a dousing instrument, as, as a lot of other dousers do. But I really do prefer uh, L-Rods and Egyptian pendulum uh, devices. Okay. And as far as... <clears throat> The pendulum. I'm. I'm not familiar. The uh, the Karnak pendulum. What does that look like? What is. What is that like? The Karnak uh, pendulum was uh, found in around the 1930s by mm -hmm. two French diviners called uh, Chaumery and de Belizeau. And they were basically back in that time. They were ransacking the Valley of the Kings. They okay. probably shouldn't have. But you right. know, Karnak. Carter were, and Carnarvon were doing that um, mm -hmm. but for the English and the Germans were doing it in uh, Egypt and uh, the, the French duo said they found particular types of energy devices okay. in the Valley of, uh, of the Kings mm -hmm. and uh, these devices were adorned on the temple spaces and uh, they kind of uh, replicated them and used them for particular healing purposes or to change the uh, energy vibration of a place or to introduce particular frequencies into a place really? so they, they, they so they were very 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 powerful because they looked at the uh, energies of the sun god ra mm -hmm. that had particular frequencies and they realized that three particular frequencies prevailed at ancient sites in egypt which were which were particular colors and they realized that these pendulums could duplicate that okay. so they could create the power of uh, temple space okay that's very interesting because I have you know I have done dousing with pendulums on occasion but uh, but my, my I'm in my comfort zone with the L rods um, and I was curious as to what that those specific that specific pendulum you know what it looked like or what was about it that they would that it was being used for dousing purposes um when have you done i imagine have you done practical dousing that that you hear about people dousing for water uh things of this nature yes i mean uh dousing when we go back to you know it's it's history it was used by you know, uh, Cleopatra to find minerals such as gold. And it's always, always been known uh, for water divining, mm -hmm. uh, for, for what's called groundwater aquifers. Right. So, yes, uh, I, I've done that type of uh, divining. I don't necessarily do that now. Mm -hmm. But, yes, I, I have uh, done that. I mean, it's so, so simple to water divine. It really is. Anyone and everyone can do that. It's really just about uh, attuning yourself. Normally, the best way to water divine actually is to use a V-shaped hazel rod. Yes. And if you use a really large uh, hazel rod, when it finds an underground stream, it will start to turn, okay, quite violently. But when mm -hmm. it finds the head of the spring, which right. is a vast quantity of underground groundwater, it will spin and spin and spin and spin and spin and probably break 
Oh. And that's when uh, you know you've hit enough water, not to feed like farm cattle, but to feed a town or city with fresh water. That is, yeah. That's that's the difference. Yes, yes, yes. Now I'm going to ask you a question because as a matter of fact, or I live on my farm, I have two wells. Um, as a matter of fact, I recently had to use them and uh, and I've and I've had instances where sometimes in my experience, sometimes when you dig a well, you have to, how can I phrase this? You you ask permission, in other words, uh, when you're digging that well. Uh, have you come across any thing where people have either dug into the earth, for example, for a well, and they just uh, disregard really what they should do because you're, you're accessing the earth for water, for like you said, whether it's for personal use, for uh, your animals, for your yard, whatever. And because I've, I've run into uh, people sometimes that have had problems, even in residentials, because sometimes people have made, you know, wells. And they've had very unusual paranormal things going on around where the well was dug. That's right. Water is very powerful. It really, really is. Uh, water is a molecule for one. It can change uh, and shapeshift to ice, to steam, to fluid. You know, it really is a shapeshifter. That's the first thing about water. And also it holds on to memory of uh, whatever is there. Mm -hmm. And if you if you disregard the sacredness of, of water, yes. then it can uh, memorize uh the, the pain of that situation yes. so you know a really good water diviner will ask permission of the land like yes. like you rightly said and yes. it will ask per permission to to bore and if you disregard that and you penetrate the earth yes. to uh, force water to come up whether it's an artesian well or whether mm -hmm. it's groundwater that that is really a kind of violation of how yes. water diviners of the past uh, would act upon. You used to do it with sacredness, so that once all the kind of gunk has come off, or the I mean the yes. chalk downland and all the mm -hmm. chalk, you used to take the fresh water and put it up to the sunlight and salute the sun. You'd introduce it to the light because yes. it's been in the dark. Yeah. Yes. So that's that's a kind of very old water divining method. It's it's about bringing the sacredness back. It's the water of life. Yes. Yes. And I, as, as a matter of fact, when I we were going to have it done because where where I live at, it's limestone. You dig six inches and you hit limestone. So you need out here to in order to uh, get to the water table, you need like a truck with a with a basically like a bore in order to get down there. Mm. Yeah. And I remember the day before I kind of like went out there and explained that everybody was, if anybody would have seen me, it's like, what's that lady doing talking to thin air? But <laughs> <laughs> You know, my neighbor is like, um, and it was like, you know, whatever, because I, I really wasn't sure what they were going to dig or what they were going to find. And it was like, just guide us to the best place and this is what the i'm going to use it for i'm going to be planting and blah 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 and of course it was very successful and and like i said we not got one but we do, we have two wells but um like i said i've had cases where sometimes uh very unusual things going on and uh the point of origin sometimes of the disturbances is where they've dug for a well 
And people never think of that as being the, the, the point of origin, some type of disturbances that you see manifested inside a household. Yeah, I mean, there was a really good British uh, master dancer called Tom Lethbridge, actually. He mm -hmm. he uh, was uh, the the master of what's called long cord pendulum dousing. And, and he doused beyond the third dimension. Uh, he doused in the kind of the fourth and the fifth uh, dimension back mm -hmm. in the 70s, which was, you know, kind of unheard mm -hmm. of then. But what he always said about water was it can influence hauntings yes. because it's like a tape recorder. Mm -hmm. Water has memory. <clears throat> uh, homopaths tell us that. And anything that happens above or is influenced by, you know, by the sudden boring of, of a well or something, that's, that's a shock factor to Gaia. You know, it, it really is can uh, influence the uh, the nature of spirits uh, in that area. So so wells have always been seen as a portal to the other world. Yes. And, uh, and even in the Iron Age, water was deemed so, so sacred that artifacts would be put in there by, yes. by the ancient Druids, for example. And, you know, it could be swords, it could be knives, it yes. could be gold hoards. And it was the, the realm between this world and the next. It's called an interface. Yes. So when you have two elements that combined like the earth to water that's the combination of two elements or it could be uh, a huge uh, uh, sky rise which is the earth to the sky but when you have this interface that's where magic uh, can happen and, it, and it's believed even by archaeologists today that the the true story of king arthur's excalibur coming out of the with the lady of the lake for mm -hmm. example is an ancient uh, Iron Age uh, rite of the sacredness of water by putting deposits of swords into into the water, into that interface where it's a, a portal to this world to the next. Yes, and um, over here in Central Florida, we have a very large lake called Lake Okeechobee. And um, around the turn of the century, when farming grew around at the perimeter, and people uh, not only were they farming, but they were going on there for fishing purposes. The f uh, the fishermen would be using nets. They would bring up skulls and skeletons, but mostly skulls, but by the hundreds. And it was later determined that the indigenous people who were there at that time, which, I mean, they were long gone. Exactly what you said. They were using this as a portal. This is where they were placing their dead in this lake because they saw it as a portal into the afterlife. Uh, the, uh, but it was quite a number, so if it was done for quite a long time, that for them, and how some cultures would bury their dead or burn them or whatever, for them placing them in this huge body of water was how that person would travel into the afterlife, which is what you described with uh, as a portal in the, in the, is that they can actually physically see it because in modern times you hear of portals but you supposedly many times you cannot see them uh there some you know may, maybe things come and go between them but we can't physically see them unless you with mailchimp you get more than a url you get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales with things like data-driven recommendations and powerful automation tools Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. 
we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. You know, you, you're sensitive or psychic or have the ability to see them. Have you ever had, have you ever used dowsing to either close or open a portal or a vortex, Maria? Yes, I mean, dowsing can be used to indicate where, you know, powerful earth energies are. So uh, in terms of, you know, master dowsers, they see... Um, vortexes as being two different types for example you can have an involutionary uh, type of uh, vortex which is about kind of increasing our sensitivity and our awareness and that tends to be like counter uh, clockwise for for example in its general overall flow and some ancient sites have these type of vortexes which are like portals into the other world mm -hmm. but they really do expand us in our terms of the evolution of the heart And it helps us gain awareness and self-mastery over our own growth and uh, consciousness. And some other kind of vortexes are more about evolution, you know, of our, our physical selves or our bodies or, or healing on, on those levels. And they tend to have what's called by master dowsers four arms. And that's like if you imagine like a bit of a the spokes of a wheel, mm -hmm. they have four arms going round. Now, when you have a kind of uh, vortex that is involutionary and evolutionary, they have eight arms and they're, they're all about balance. So there's, there's different types of uh, vortexes and portals and a dowsing by the so-called arms of, mm -hmm. of these um, uh, vortexes allows us to interpret that. And some ancient sites have these. For example, a temple in Malta has an evolutionary type of uh, vortex portal, and that's all about spiritual expansion. Mm -hmm. So I, I think our ancient ancestors recognized these places upon the earth and built temple spaces around them because they knew how to work with the energy. Yes. And again, that's, that's the kind of thing that we've lost it in a way. And uh, that's where I, I feel that the knowledge of... Of, uh, of the past can open up doorways for our own future because we must remember in the ancient times thousands of people would go to these temple spaces mm -hmm. and yes. they would know how to work with the energies now look at Stonehenge today in its peak time you have 500 people on bus after bus yes. going around Stonehenge and they are blind to what is the the purpose of that site they're looking at it as a visual wonder with no clue of what they should be doing there and then that's the reality of today do you, i've heard <clears throat> that they've basically they they're not allowing people in there anymore as far as whereas before you could go that they're they're not allowing like there's a uh i guess like an area that you can only get so close because it was they were like no, I don't want to say harming it, but the site, it was too many, too many people were going. 
and uh, now there that you can be there but not like you were able to before do you think that places like this act like a battery as far as using the humans that trample you know regardless of their intention like you said whether they understand what really what's going on there or they're just there to sightsee do you think because you mentioned earlier that one of these sites had gotten more powerful do you think that they draw power from tourists or from all the visitors well, firstly, you know, money talks. And yes. if you buy private access at Stonehenge, you can get in there. Yeah, that's the yeah. first thing. Okay. So, uh, the, and the second thing is, you know, uh, in the daytime hours, out of office hours, you can buy private access. And, uh, you know, it's ka-ching. It's, it's a cash yes. cow yes. For, for English heritage. But when we kind of look at these uh, these sites and and their power, it's how you use them. It's interesting to note at Stonehenge that you should be walking around it in a clockwise manner. Yeah. Uh, and, and in Druidry, even modern day Druidry, if you go counterclockwise, it's Widdishins. Mm -hmm. It's going against the flow of the energy. Yes. And how do English Heritage guide you around that site? in its weakest point in Widdishins, going around it counterclockwise. So the average punter that is paying their dues in normal office hours to go around Stonehenge mm -hmm. isn't ever, ever going to feel the energy because they're walking against it. That's right. the problem. Okay. And, and, you, and, and why is that? Because these places, they're power places, mm -hmm. they're sacred sites. They can turn your awareness on in an instant. They can allow you to grow in an instant. And that's what I feel that the authorities of uh, my land for certain don't want. They don't want you to be able to attune back to the land. And they use it as like a sightseeing wonder, uh, allowing you to go around it in the wrong manner. It's, it's ludicrous. Do you think that there's sites out there that have yet to be discovered? Because like oh, you said, there are some of the artifacts or whatever are buried or were buried either intentionally or through time. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, when we think about it in the British Isles in southern England, where I am based, mm -hmm. if you dig down about a meter, you're going to hit the Roman age, right. for example. If you dig down even deeper, you're going to get to prehistoric times. And if you dig down even deeper, you're going to get to the Mesolithic. So when we think about it, you know, there's so, so, so much underground that is yet to await discovery. Mm -hmm. it, it, it will really be a wonder. Then when we think about it, the British Isles, England, was uh, only an island from 6,000 uh, years ago. And in between England and Norway and that part of the, the continent was a whole landmass called Doggerland that is now under the sea because of the, ice, uh, the melting glaciers about mm -hmm. ten to 12,000 years ago. So there's lots of things under, under the ground, under the water that is awaiting yes. discovery. And I really do think the further back you go in time, the more sophisticated it was. Yeah. yeah. So when you look about, uh, back at the Neolithic five and a half thousand years ago and to the astronomical alignments at places like Stonehenge and Avery, 
very, very sophisticated. You go to the Dark Ages, mm -hmm. you know, round about, you know, four, uh, 400 AD to the time of King Arthur, where you're in the, you're literally the Dark Age, where they didn't have anything like that. And it seemed to go backwards evolution, not forwards. Okay. So the further we go back in time, the more sophisticated mankind seemed to be. Yes, yes. And... And that's very interesting. I did not know that that, that there was a landmass, a connecting landmass uh, there. That that that, like you said, there must be so many things that are underwater now. That of course makes it much more difficult to access or to explore it, whatever the case might be. Uh, as far as uh, and 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 it makes me think when, um, like you said, there's sites that are huge because they were made to accommodate maybe a gathering and then there were smaller ones maybe for a village or for a constant you know certain amount of people uh would you say of and i know i'm going to say the summer solstice which is the one everybody thinks of as in regards to to stonehenge and so forth is there any other time period during the year that is as important as the summer solstice when you when if you're visiting one of these sites i think the most important time when it comes to ancient sites like stonehenge isn't the sun that's an annual event okay that is easily marked out and when we look to stonehenge if we look to phase one of stonehenge then the major alignment is the moon ah. and and every 18.61 years, it's called the moon's metonic cycle, the moon will rise on the same day at this round about the same time within two hours uh, in the same place that it did 18.61 years ago. And it's a massive, massive event. Very, very powerful energetically. Why? Because the moon influences underground water. We know that the, 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 the super moons... Um, uh, and the high tides are influenced by the moon. But yes. let's think about all of that deep underground water. Then during the moon's metonic cycle, everything becomes active. And it's not an annual event. The summer solstice happens yes. at the same time every year. Yes. So the moon's, the moon's event, which was above the heelstone in phase one, the full moon used to rise there at the mid-cycle of the moon's metonic cycle every nine years. Imagine that, being at the center of Stonehenge and a massive full moon rises above the hillstone now be at Averyhenge uh, 17 miles uh, to the north of Stonehenge in the world's biggest stone circle and you're at the middle of the northern inner circle then you would see the moon rising so brightly above mm -hmm. you it would have been it would have been a wonder and it makes us realize that some of the ancient sites were not intended to be used in the daytime. They oh. were nighttime events, okay? Yes. And, and the moon is associated intimately through most, most mythologies to represent the goddess mm -hmm. and women and intuition and magic. So we can change the early phases of stone circles to be a goddess culture, worshiping the moon at night. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, people don't realize, uh, even even now recently, like I said, when we had the hurricane, they were, uh, it just so happened that the area where it was supposed to come in, they were having what they call the king tides, which it just so happens is 
you know, of course, there's the ebb and flow of the tides, high tide, low tides, but it was historically, this is one of the times that you had the highest tides, which, of course, in relations to weather, but uh, yes, the, the, the moon, as far as the, the, the daily or the monthly, if you want to look at it that way, it's much closer, much more intimate as far as how it affects the humans. Uh, because every, like you said, everybody thinks of the sun because of the warmth and sunlight and growth or, you know, crops, whatever the case might be. But the moon is much more, I want to say, intimate, constant. Uh, and of course, because of the cycle is much so much shorter uh, as far as how it affects um, a lot of things, you know, some some more subtle than others. Uh, and, and then, of course, like you said, you have to be attuned. Maria, during these times, have you done, have you participated in any type of rituals or ceremonies? Uh, have anybody ever tried to replicate any of what they think might have gone on at any of the sites? Nothing was written down in prehistory. Nothing. Right. Yeah. And and the only uh, history that comes from the uh, ancient British Isles was by conquerors such as Caesar and, and chroniclers like Pliny the Elder, a Greek chronicler, who wrote about the Druids and things. So it's, it's very uh, difficult to say that any modern day ceremony is reflected of the ancient past. But what Pliny the Elder wrote, for example, was that the Druids would only collect mistletoe, that's our cure-all of the British Isles, mm -hmm. uh, at particular times of the lunar cycle, which was six days after a new or full moon. Pliny the Elder was very pacific in writing that. Caesar was very pacific in writing that. Now, the interesting thing in that is earth energies, especially uh, deep underground aquifers, uh, change their rotational spin. If you imagine it's a bit like a, a spiral underground water, and every six days after a new or full moon, it will change its rotation from like clockwise to counterclockwise. Then that's what happens. And I think the ancient Druids were fully aware of that. That's why they would only pick mistletoe six days after a new or full moon. Okay. It's in, in the cycle of uh, earth energies, uh, for instance. So I do feel that that's when ceremonies would have been activated not necessarily as they are today at the new or full moon because right. that's not when the the energies are at their most powerful which seems you know uh, counterintuitive because we're right. all used to those those cycles but yes. i think if we if we look to the scripts especially caesar writing in the conquest of gold uh, and dispata he specifically says that's when the druids would do their rites six days after a new or full moon round about the time of the first quarter moons so if we want to reenact the ceremonies of our ancient ancestors we have to attune ourselves to the earth energies and the cycle of the moon which isn't necessarily the new or the full right and so in other words they were attuning whether it was a waxing or a waning you know cycle whatever the cycle of the moon was at that time is what you're saying versus the full or the new moon um do you think that what was going on was it when the romans conquered was this when all of this culture and this knowledge kind of like either went underground or disintegrated what do you think happened as far as the knowledge of all this the esoteric knowledge whether it was like you said the the cycles uh the information the druids had as or whether the builders when do you think that that just disappeared 
In 1500 BC, approximately, okay, everything in the British Isles changed. And that is a time when the stone circles were abandoned. Yeah. So we're looking at a culture that spent, you know, a thousand years uh, worshipping or interacting with the energies of stone circles. Then suddenly everything was abandoned. I mean, let's put that into our cultural context today. That's like saying we would abandon everything we know and mm -hmm. do something differently okay i mean it's a really big cultural change yes. and around about 1500 bc the climate changed dramatically okay you you had uh, a, a big volcano in iceland that erupted around 1500 bc they used to think archaeologists that it was uh, santorini in the greek isles mm -hmm. now they know it was mount hecla uh, in, 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 in Iceland. So the climate changed in 1500 BC. No longer could the, the, the lowlands be farmed. Everything got kind of soggy and wet. And we know this because of tree evidence and the, you know, the kind of tree rings, they, they, they all changed and it, it's quite easy to determine. And isn't it interesting to note that the most critical time of prehistory when everything changed, we're facing that today yes. with climate change. So maybe it's a whole thing about reincarnation and where we're facing the same things our ancient ancestors uh, faced. But what we do know in uh, 1500 BC is that the culture did change and they headed to the high ground, the okay. Druids. And, and they built new monuments uh, at that time. In, in other words, regardless of how much, yeah, it would have taken something, like you said, where the climate, of course, dictates a lot as far as the day-to-day -day living. Um, because you didn't have, like we do now, things that kind of like shelter us from inclement weather. Uh, it, even though it's sustained, you know, we, we have air conditioning or we have heating, a lot of other things that weren't around back then. Um, and, and that's, and people don't realize that uh, even like, like you said, volcanic uh, eruptions, uh, besides anything having to do with the climate, of course, depending how close the, you know, the, the area was, uh, could absolutely affect, in this case, uh, like you said, it became soggy, it became difficult to live in certain places. Uh, have they ever discovered at any of these sites any type of writing or any type of glyphs, glyphs anything as far as record keeping? Intriguingly so, at Stonehenge, recorded in the Elizabethan times, around about, you know, the, the 1500s to get a, a timeline uh, going, it was uh, recorded by uh, one scholar at the time that at near Stonehenge or at Stonehenge, it, it all becomes a bit vague, that there was a metal plate that had very strange uh, symbols written upon it. In fact, the scholars at the time couldn't interpret it. And they would have known about Latin. They would have known about different languages. You know, it wasn't right. like we were a, a backwater that didn't understand uh, mm -hmm. continental uh, Europe. So there was these strange hieroglyphs. So that that's a bit of enigma. And unfortunately, that got lost, much to the uh, sadness of antiquarians after that time. And uh, if we go back to, uh, you know, the time of the uh, Iron Age, mm -hmm. from about 750 BC to the 
uh, Roman conquest of 43 AD, you had what's called poem writing of uh, of the Druid period, where they were like markings on, on a stone or on a line. So there, there was writing, but I'm really intrigued about the very strange uh, hieroglyphs found at Stonehenge, and uh, I'd love to be able to find that artifact again. Yes, <laughs> yes. let me ask you, I've heard of that on some of these hills in England, they uh, something uh, like, you know, you've heard of the Nazca lines where there are certain figures or animals, but they're huge, that basically you can only see them from a certain vantage point and that they were done again way back then. And uh, I don't know if you had come across any of that as, as far as any of these sites besides the erection of, of monoliths or anything of this, of stones or obelisks. Have you come across anything like that when you've been out there? Well, there is one uh, late Bronze Age site. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the Affington White Horse, which yes, is exactly. uh, a, a kind of chalk hill figure etched into a hillside, which can only be, be, be seen in its totality from the air. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of a, a little bit like the the kind of Nazca lines, uh, right. if you will. Because why make uh, a chalk horse figure, which some people say was uh, originally a dragon, I mean, theories mm -hmm. abound, but it can only be seen from there. It is quite intriguing. So I think some of uh, the sites were designed like the, that white horse to be seen from above. Right. Right. And that's that that was my question. Again, if you're going to if there was some type of imagery that you wanted to convey for some reason, whether it was a horse or a dragon, why would you do it in such a fashion where unless you were a certain vantage point, for lack of a better word, unless you knew it was there, you really couldn't. It, it didn't. There was no. Uh, and of course, we know they didn't have airplanes. So, again, you co you, you come back to why would they do that? Uh, which I, th I, th I thought was very intriguing when, when I read about that. Uh, and again, like you said, a lot of times we think of some of these ancient cultures as being very primitive when it comes to things of this nature. And I think it's fascinating when these cultures actually use their manpower to do all these aesthetical things. In other words, this wasn't because you're planting crops or doing some type of uh, work. This was strictly... Uh, whether it was for religious purposes or, you know, mystical, what, whatever the case might be, uh, that it speaks more like what you said as far as the, the civilizations that were there, their knowledge. Uh, and I think sometimes everybody equates everything with scientific versus ingrained knowledge as far as being closer to the earth. Like one has more value than the other. In other words, because maybe now we have all this advanced scientific knowledge, anything by comparison suffers in the comparison. But the trade-off is that we've lost, I think, also a lot of what they used to have in these ancient civilizations and understanding that, now, I don't want to say lost, but we can't remember. Or that's it. And, that's, and unfortunately, there's no record keeping that we could say, well, this is what we lost. Exactly. What we do know about, you know, the ancient past is when it comes to massive building programs and they were massive. 
building programs. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to build a site like Avery Henge with over 800 stones and a massive chalk embankment yes. uh, around it and massive mounds uh, near there that's the, the largest man-made uh, mound in Northwest Europe, that people were coming together to build this. And they they would have have to be fed, they would have have to be watered, they would have to be mm-hmm. sheltered. But it seems that they wanted to come together. It was like a spiritual uh, project. I mean, yes. could you imagine trying to do that today and galvanize uh, whole communities and yes. say, we're gonna, we're gonna go on this massive building uh, spiritual program come and join me yes. uh, it'll be very very difficult but that's for what free they were doing. you know we'll just give you a <laughs> place to sleep and food to eat but for free <laughs> <laughs> yeah it'd be like nah, no you mean uh, no nah. I, 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 I like absolutely yeah you'd, you'd have a uh there's be no volunteers <laughs> at least for the kind of projects like what you were saying the manpower that it would require um to do that, whether it was the sheer muscle or the logistics of it. Like you said, where do these people sleep, eat, uh, whatever, while they're doing this? Uh, so there had to be, a, like you said, some type of unity of thought or in spirit that yes. would drive them. Not, and, and I don't mean drive in a, in, a, in a bad way, but drive them to want to do that. Exactly. There was, uh, especially in the British Isles and across Europe, there was uh, a kind of galvanization of a spiritual uh, change that said, we want to build these structures that mark these uh, ancient energies across Northwest Europe. It wasn't just like the British Isles. This is a massive, massive program that was in the mindset of uh, the prehistoric people who were highly intelligent, the best mathematicians, highly good at engineering skills. Stonehenge stands as testimony to that. And excellent astronomers and geomancers. These were skilled, skilled people that were wanting to do this. And that is their legacy. And even today, people get drawn to these sites, whether it's the pyramids in Egypt or or Stonehenge or elsewhere. People still know there's something very sacred and special about these places that are alchemy places. They can transmute us and transform our energies. So it's attractive four and a half thousand years later using orthodox timing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, yes, people will say, well, the people that are drawn there, they're doing the tourist thing. But again, I think that there's something more profound going on as far as the attraction to go there. And maybe people excuse it as just simple curiosity or tourism. But absolutely, I think that there's something on a much more uh, spiritual level uh, that will draw people in. Something maybe on a subconscious level that we understand but no longer do on a conscious level. Uh, but it's there. Now, let me ask you something, Maria. Are you, do you have any projects, any new books, anything that you're working on now? Yeah, I'm working on a, a book about uh, Stonehenge and the uh, Long Skull people that originally mm-hmm. built the monument and uh, their culture and uh, how they 
would have uh, viewed Stonehenge and other sites uh, at that kind of, you know, Neolithic uh, period in, in time. And uh, and I'm fascinated about the the people of the past because when we look to the monuments, we're overwhelmed. Well, I'm overwhelmed by them. <laughs> you yes. look at Stonehenge and places, but who built them? Exactly. Where where are the are these people? So I want to introduce to uh, the public the people of the past, and yes. I'm trying to to match the people uh, of of the past to the monuments in which they created in the British Isles in Europe. I mean, when we turn to uh, ancient Egypt, we we kind of have an awareness of who built them. We kind of have an awareness yes. of the New Kingdom, like King Tut and Akhenaten and Nefertiti mm-hmm. and Ramesses. We, we, we kind of understand that. We don't understand that here in Europe. So that's what yes. I'm trying to do. Bring awareness of the people of the past, what they look like, the, and, and the, the, the kind of ceremonies that they probably uh, did by peace uh, working and, and doing a bit of a jigsaw to, to, understand, to understand them and their monuments because they've been overlooked. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maria, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. It has been absolutely fascinating. And if possible, if you could give out for my podcast listeners, I'm going to have a link to your website, but if you could uh, go ahead and, and tell us what is your website address? I've got two websites. My okay. teaching uh, website is esotericcollege.com, mm-hmm. where I have lots of courses on, on dowsing and, and other okay. things uh, besides. And uh, I do tours of ancient sites, and people can find out about that at the Avebury, A-V-E-B-U-R-Y, the AveburyExperience.co.uk. And I've also got a website, mariaweekly.com. Very good, very good. Again, I want to wish you the best of luck on your new book and any new projects. And uh, like I said, I'm going to have a links in the credit of the show to all the your uh, website addresses. Thank you so much, Maria. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Marlene. It's been a pleasure. Take care. And you. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow. Let me tell you something. <clears throat> I would love to. I've never been there, and it's true. I, I probably do the regular tourist thing because of, but it's it's just, it's, it's so interesting to realize because of course everybody always thinks of Stonehenge. This is the one that gets all this attention. Everybody, you say Stonehenge, and people automatically, you know, yeah, Stonehenge. And you come to find out that there's so many other sites along these uh, lines uh, that were you know erected possibly for like she said for the either mystical or ceremonial or religious or maybe a place where people would gather whether it was uh a, the one a yearly thing that they would travel to because this was the one time of year or whether maybe it was a smaller thing for a smaller group of people maybe even a monthly the gathering uh and again it's it's a shame that there's no written records unless, for example, like a historian that noted this. Uh, otherwise, there would be no way as far as second guessing. I mean, there's only so much that you can theorize what the intent is behind something before you're like totally, you're, you, you have no idea where you're going with it. Or what was the intention when they built it? Or what did they do with it while it was there? Uh, or like she said, when about 1500 uh, years before uh, BC, they abandoned these sites. 
Uh, and, and to me, I'm thinking it, it would have to be something very, very drastic. Because if you think about it, after going through all the um, time, effort, and the, for lack of a better word, the, the sacred um, significance that these places had for these people to up and say, we're not going to go there anymore. We can't use there. We cannot. You would think it has to be something pretty drastic. Uh, so again, people don't realize that um, we we have lost something. Because like she said, to be able, uh, without a lot of the modern equipment that we have, whether it's for the geometry or the, you know, whatever science you want to use if you for alignment as, as far as astronomy, or even in order to set them certain ways that they wouldn't topple, let alone transport them. All these things you needed, you, you just couldn't do it. Like say, hey, that, that stone, let's bring it away. In other words, there had to be some type of knowledge and scientific calculation in order to accomplish what they wanted to do, where they wanted to erect it, how they wanted to erect it in that certain position. And that we now, if somebody told us, okay, we're going to take away your calculator, <laughs> we're going to take away all the modern equipment that you use to, to figure this out, now figure it out. And it'd be like, huh? What? So I want to say that sometimes we get fooled because we have so many scientific advances in other areas that we're so far advanced. But I think in, besides the stuff that we lost on the spiritual level as far as being close to the earth and like she described that we're not apart from it. We are part of it. But in like there's an ebb and flow and you feel it and it's like we're part of the natural world along with everything else on it. Um, that we, we lost out on that. We lost out of that. And even then, the knowledge that we have is very illusory because like I said, if you take away all the modern uh, things that we could use to calculate building that replicating we would not be able to do so we wouldn't because we've become so uh reliant on all these things that do the brain work for us the figuring out and i want to say also the impatience because i'm thinking maybe even for astronomical purposes they had to do a lot of observations for a quite a period of time uh to realize whether it was a year, uh, whatever, like how, how, you know, certain uh, alignments, they only happen that maybe every few years. In other words, there was a time that had to be done, even from the point of just observation. And then translate that and use that knowledge into the calculations of whatever you wanted. Let's say, for example, a certain uh, circle or monoliths or whatever to represent. Uh, we don't have that now. We, we're, we're, the, we're the people of the instant gratification, myself included. <laughs> we, we're, we've been attuned to that. Uh, and I want to say that it's very nice when you have it, but in the background, it um, it does us a disservice. Number one, because we we lose the patience and the ability to just observe things. Uh, we lose that because we want everything to be, it's like, okay, hurry up, tell me, you know, what do you mean? I got, we got things to do, we're used to it, and it's like, you, you, what do you want? You want, you expect me to sit here and do what? Sit here and watch? 
Yes, maybe sometimes days, weeks, even months. Are you kidding me? No, I can't do that. We've lost that. We've lost that. And I think it's it doesn't work in our favor that we've lost that ability. Um, and some people will say, well, <clears throat> even if I wanted to, I couldn't. Up to a certain point, I'll say that's true because of the demands of modern life. But I think that a lot of the people that say that, if you say, okay, I'm going to take away all these uh, these uh, things that would not allow you to say, I'm going to observe this, let's say, for two months, whether it's your family uh, running errands, I, we're going to handle all of that. We're going to take care of it very well, just like you, so that your time is yours and all you have to do is observe this, whatever the case might be. I guarantee you there's a lot of people that wouldn't be able to do it. They couldn't. They would maybe after the first day, the first week, they'd bolt because we've lost that. Uh, and, and from there, that power of observation, the time, the patience, from there, everything springs forward from there. Whether it's introspection for mystical or spiritual matters or for more practical things, as far as, let's say, astronomy or mathematics, figuring things out, or uh, observation as far as introspection, just as for creativity. Because I think that that's where the wellspring of creativity comes from, which is that nothingness. I'm not going to try to think of something, no to-do list. I gotta like empty out my head and stay there. And then that's when sometimes things like, like that either you know what they say you have the epiphany or whatever or sometimes uh an idea that's been going around in your head but never formalizes or you never get that that's when you have that moment that it becomes very clear what it was that you had swirling around in your head and again you know these people back there yes maybe they didn't have advances but they had that ability we've lost it Hopefully not permanently. A lot of things are in flux as far as, um, you know, modern life. And a lot of people will think, uh, let's say now with the advancements of technology, they're supposed to free our time. And I haven't seen that. <laughs> it hasn't freed up time. Uh, you know, I, I, I went through the workplace where it was the, the thing was, uh, I want to say like in the 90s, we're going to go to a paperless environment, which of course was to transition to more, uh, everything being more computerized, let's say at workplaces. And a lot of these advances that supposedly are promised by technology, they're good, but they I haven't seen really where they do give us free time to be, or leisure time, because we've filled it up with other crap. So we're right back where we started out. We don't have this, but we have that. Yeah, we don't have to write something out, hand write it out. We could do it on the computer, but we have other stuff that's been th put into that void. Which, by the way, as a hypnotist, there's something very powerful about the idiomotor response. It's associated when you write out something in longhand or in cursive. As a matter of fact, if you ever want to do um, affirmations, one of the most powerful ways before, besides telling it to yourself, is make like a, a very, maybe one or two sentence affirmation and write it in cursive on a daily basis. Get like maybe a little diary or notebook and write it. 
and write it in not printing longhand or something tied in with the ideomotor responses, how it speaks to your subconscious mind and beyond. In other words, it goes through um, that filter that we have between our conscious or subconscious mind. It kind of like bypasses it. Uh, so again, anyway, guys, I hope you like the show. I love speaking to Maria and I urge you to visit her website, which, like I said before, the links will be there so that you can... Um, check out you know she has the the tours she has books she has a lot of information i myself like i said i've done dowsing for 15 years i implement I, i've used it on paranormal investigations i've i've done use practically to find things um like i said my dowsing rods are right over there uh if it wasn't that i disconnect this i'd pull them and you could look at them i have them hung behind my door and <clears throat> they I've tried using other, and they have my energy, and I will use them, and I'll just swipe them through my hand, and they, they throb with energy. You can feel it. It's uh, anybody that's done dowsing will understand. I have done dowsing with pendulums. Um, but I don't know. I guess my favorite is the dowsing rods, the L rods. Um, I think that whole thing is fascinating. It's very fascinating, and um, again visit our sites and check it out. So take care guys. Thank you so so much for being part of my audience. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.